The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to your officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work, to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is God's word. A lot of this passage and even the life of God's people as we see in the early chapters of this this story is, it's so much like this Midwestern highway. It's this long journey and they are longing for God's answers, longing to arrive uh, to see see God do what he has promised to do. I went on a lot of road trips growing up. In my life, uh, growing up in the Midwest, we, our road trips took us to places like Florida and New York City, um, Tennessee, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Dollywood, um, and that's Dollywood with a D, not Hollywood. Uh, Dollywood is, of course, an amusement park centered around the central theme of Dolly Parton. If you haven't gone, you still don't need to go. Okay, so it's a... Uh, <clears throat> So we would just travel everywhere. I'm one of seven children, and so a family of nine with mom and dad, we would get into the van. We had a big van, and everyone would get in the van. One of those vans with um, curtains on the windows. I mean, we were really really sophisticated. And there was really one goal with a family road trip like this. Uh, And it was even a goal that was much more important than getting to your destination. It was 
It was getting out of the car and getting fresh air whenever you could. And I didn't know now what I knew then about you know, long distance travel and road travel and even how highway signs were set up. And so you're driving on the freeway and you see a sign with an arrow that says Florida, this direction. We would get so excited and we're like, wow, we just started and Florida's already so close. And my dad would say, no, that's just, that's just a, a sign to the highway that will take us to Florida. And there were like five more like false alarms like this until we got there, right? These exits that showed you to the place that you were going, these false alarms. And now I know, oh, these were just like clues to another clue. And eventually it would lead us to the treasure, you know, of getting out of the van and getting some fresh air. And this is what happened along the way. We would get there and we'd see a sign finally that said like, welcome to Florida, welcome to New York, you know, welcome to Dollywood, you know. Uh, whatever, whatever that destination was, then we would know we were there, and, and, it, and it was wonderful. It made it all the worthwhile. It made all the asking the questions of, are we there yet, uh, worthwhile. We were happy. But there were times on that road trip, and I promise you, and I know maybe you've been there as well, there are times on that road trip along the way where you almost would have su substituted the destination just for something else, just to get done. On a long trip like that, you just want to get out. Maybe you're not really excited anymore about uh, where you're going. You just want comfort, you want rest, you want out of that place that you're in. Israel had this problem. They're on this long trip. God had foreshadowed for them a king and a kingdom that he would make them a people. God foreshadowed for a long time and they're, and they're waiting. And along the way, there's a lot of these clues. There's a lot of these road signs that says, hey, we're there. And they're like, are we there yet? And it's like, no, no, no. And it happened for so long. It's happened for hundreds of years. And they're getting discouraged. And they are willing to substitute their destination of God's way of living for God and living as his people and trusting in him. And they want to take matters into their own hands. They have forgotten the joy of what it means to actually uh, trust in God, that they just want to settle for what is in front of them. King has been foreshadowed in chapter 1 to 7. We see this anticipation building up. And they take a detour, if you will, to continue with the analogy. And we have this problem, too. We have a passion for substitutes. We have a passion for immediate gratification. God has shown us in the way to live through his word. He has given promises to us. And we wonder if it's really, after a long time of suffering, we wonder if it's really worth it. We wonder if we would be just as happy if we just got off of that, that journey and just took things into our own hand. We do this in so many ways. We're prone to reject God when he, when what he says because we think sometimes maybe our way is better. Or maybe that destination where God has us isn't as good. We do this with money, with sex, with power. We do it with work. We do it with authority. We, we do it with so many different areas. We have a passion for substitutes. And the Bible is a true story. It is a true story. We talk about this a lot. It's a true story of, of who God is and what he has done. And so in this true story, God's always revealing himself to us. But just as much as it's a true story about God, it's also a true story about us. And in chapter 8, we see in the story of 1 Samuel that God is doing something different here that he hasn't done in the first seven chapters. Instead of revealing to us who he is, God is turning the mirror to us, and he is giving his analysis of who we are. So it's a true story of who we are, and he is showing us who we are. The function of 1 Samuel chapter 8 is to serve as God's analysis for his people. He's been telling us up to this point, look at who I am, look at what I have done, look at what I will do. 
And now in chapter 8, we see that we don't learn much about God at all, but now he is showing us who we are. And just as he is showing and giving his honest analysis of his people long ago, it serves as an analysis for us even today. And I, as much as you, don't like doing stuff like this. I don't like analysis of myself. I don't like someone else telling me who I am and pointing out faults and failures. I don't like work assessments. I don't like uh, feedback, as constructive as it is. I don't like that. But if we can endure the painful process of hearing from God about our tendencies and our heart, God is going to expose our heart and say, here's what you look like. And if we can endure that painful process of taking an honest and humble look about what God has to say, then I think we will be much better prepared to enjoy the comfort and love and grace that He offers to us at the end of it. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to let God tell us who we are. And we're going to monitor our own hearts and humble our spirits to to hear from God. Because to read God's Word is to hear God speak. To deny what He says is to deny God altogether. And so as we look at this analysis, let's monitor our hearts, see if we fall in the same kind of error as we long for God's reminder of His faithfulness to us, even when we struggle and even when we fail. And so I've got a few things that this exposes of God's people and and of us today that is also true. The first one is this, is that we tend to ignore spiritual realities in our present circumstances. God never condemned the idea of a monarchy. He never condemned the idea of a king. He never told them, don't ask for a king. If anything, God foreshadowed it. He told them that a day would come. He promised for a king over his people in a time of Moses. And so it's been 400 years, and they're waiting for a king. So if it wasn't wrong to ask God for a king, why, why, why such a bad request? Why was God and Samuel so upset about this request? The problem wasn't with the request itself. The problem was with, with the motive in their heart for their request. In an instant, God knows that they are simply asking for a king at a desire to, to turn from him altogether, to reject him as their king, and God exposes them. Notice their reasons for giving, or for, that they give for wanting a king to, compared to the real motives in their heart for wanting a king that we see. They say this, they say, it's time for a king. Samuel, you did your job, you did a great job, but you're really old. You're probably going to die soon. Your sons are wicked and they're worthless, and so we don't want them to lead us either. So one plus one equals two. You're old, your kids aren't going to lead us, so we need a king. But God sees through that. He sees through. There are, there are things that are just like pragmatic and decision-making, and it seems reasonable. He sees through that and to the motive of their heart. They didn't want to do things God's way. They didn't want to follow in God's timing. They didn't want to wait on Him and follow in His wisdom. And so God says, they have rejected me. In asking this, I know the real motive in their heart. They've rejected me as their king over them. Early in chapter 4, they tried to manipulate God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield to try to win battles for them. They tried to use God, and they're doing the same thing in chapter 8 again. They're trying to manipulate God or substitute God substitute him out and bring something else in that was more comfortable and seemed easier. And Israel's bad motives are good instruction for us. If, you, if there's a struggle in your life, just think of the struggle in your life. Think of family, think of work, think of your emotions, think of the, the difficulties that you have experienced or experiencing now, the fear that you have. It tends to be that our first and strongest impulse is just to think of the external factors that have contributed to that rather than the spiritual things. 
Is your marriage going really poorly? Well, then just learn how to have better communication skills and that'll fix it all. Is there loss of joy in your life? Well, then just spend more time uh, doing the things that you love to do and investing more in you. Do you hate your job and find little joy in that? Then just get a new job. We think that the answer to our problems are just adjustments in our circumstances and not repentance of our heart. And this was the mistake that God's people made. It's a mistake that we make at times as well. When bad things are happening and hard things are happening, we think, okay, I just need to make adjustments in my life. I need to change behavior or the behavior of others, and then things will be better. God wants to expose how quick we are to have this impulse to think so little of the spiritual things going on in our hearts. We think that the answer to our problems is to change our circumstance. And Israel looked at all their ups and downs. They looked at all the trouble they were having. And they never perceived that God may have been doing something in their life to bring attention to what was going on in their heart. And that's what God says. He says, ever since I brought them out of Egypt, even then, all the ways that I've been a father to them, every, all the ways I've been a king to them, a leader to them, they have consistently denied me as their leader. They have denied following in my ways. And they keep thinking about the world's ways and what works and what's pragmatic. And they keep falling into error. And they have done this ever since. And all the ups and downs, they just simply want to get off that highway and they just want things to change. And they don't want to get to that destination anymore. And when we act like this, we too show that we're not relying on God. When we fail to think of the spiritual matters, the deeper spiritual matters in our heart that may be going on, we're running from God. We're running from what He wants to show us. But something interesting about this, about 30 years have passed between chapters, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. So the end of chapter 7, the last verse of chapter 7, and the first verse of chapter 8, 30 years have gone by. And this is so interesting. Why does the writer do this? The writer is wanting to show us side by side two big and important realities. Chapter 7 shows God's people putting away idols, putting away substitutes, and turning to God repenting of sin, and trusting in Him with their whole lives. Chapter 8 shows the complete opposite. We are, we are able to see in a, in a very short snapshot how, how quick we are prone to forget God's kindness, His faithfulness, His care for us, and turning to other things that just seem easier and quicker at the time. In their great need for a leader to lead them, they do not cry out to God for help like they did in chapter 7, but they demand a king to lead them. And in a way, they're just saying, God, we tried you, now we're going to try something else. And that contrast is starking for us to see. There's another way that Israel's motives are good instruction for us, and they show us this. They show us how we tend to uh, be more concerned with how God will help us rather than if God will help us. If you were struggling, and we met and we sat down, and I just looked at you, and I listened to your struggles, and I just responded so simply like this take heart. God will help you. Now, you may, be, you may think, that's great and that's important, but that doesn't do much for me. That's like saying, if you're going to buy, some, you're going to buy something that you really want to buy, and the clerk at the counter says, you're in luck. Here's a 5% off coupon. And you're thinking, what does that get me, like a dollar? Like, you're like thinking, well, thank you, but that doesn't really change my life. That doesn't help me. You want to know how it's not enough at times to know that just God cares for you. 
You want to know how he's going to care for you. You know what he's going to change in your life. You want to know what steps he's going to do today and tomorrow and the days ahead that you can tangibly see so that you can see the movement of God. And this is what his people have done. This is what we continue to do. And God saw in the hearts of the Israelites, and, and he, he looks in their hearts, and, and he sees that they are not interested in knowing that he cares. They are more interested in prescribing to God of how, they, how he should change their life, and how he should lead them, and how he should love them. And when, it, when we do that, he exposes that we're not really trusting God. We're trusting in the method. We're trusting in the practical steps that God will take. We're trusting in ourselves, in our own strength. We're not trusting in God. It's easy to look at the Old Testament people and wonder, what foolishness. Like, look at all that God has done to show himself faithful. Don't you feel that way when you read Old Testament stories? You're like, wow, God has shown himself faithful time and time again. After all that God has done for them, these people still don't believe that, they, that God cares. God proved himself in signs and wonders Time and time again, he parts the Red Sea. What more do they need? He rescued them from slavery. What more do they need? He saved them from the, from the hand of, of, of their enemies numerous times and in dramatic fashion. He talked through animals. He resurrected dead people. What else does God have to do for these people to believe that he cares for them? And that care for them is enough. It's all they need. Let me ask you, do you believe that those things really happened? Do you believe that God can help you? But not only do you believe that God can help you, do you believe that God has demonstrated his care for you ultimately by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that, but you still in your heart want to know, okay, I want to know how you're going to change my life. Do you see that we're really not that different? We are prone to care so much more about how God's going to change our life rather than he will, that he has promised to care for us. What is holding you back from trusting in his ultimate care? What is holding you back from believing that he does care for you and that's enough and that he's demonstrated that care for you ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in numerous ways through the people uh, that have gone before us and the stories of how he's worked through the lives of his people to redeem them, to save them, to care for them. Why not trust him? What else do you need? And what that does is it exposes that, well, we're not trusting in God and his care. We're actually trusting in the methods. We're trusting in these material things, the external things. If it's, it's difficult, if it's difficult to trust in God and just that he cares for you, then you understand how they felt a long time ago. Your struggle is not in believing that God cares. Your struggle is resting in God's care. Your struggle is with letting God care for you in the way that he wants to care for you. Chapter 8 asks us to be honest. God is showing us the things that we really struggle with. And if we're humble enough to listen to God, we will hear God saying to us, you don't struggle with believing. You struggle in trusting God that my way is better than yours. You struggle with letting me care for you in the way that I want to care for you. To which we should say, yeah, you're right. I don't trust you. I don't trust in your way. I trust in what I can see. I trust in what I can feel. 
You have shown yourself faithful to me time and time again. You have given me Jesus who has died for my sins so that, and to welcome me home and forgiven me. And yet I still want more. I still want more. This is what they struggled with. It's what we struggled with. If you can endure, I have a couple more things that we're prone, things that we can see from this passage. And here's the next one. We are prone to resist our holy identity. They say, we don't want to be who you have called us to be. We want to be like everyone else. You see, God had called his people holy, holy being set apart and distinct and different. He has called them out of darkness and into light. He has called them to be his people and he would be their God. And this was a unique relationship that they had with one another. To be holy is to be set apart, specifically to be set apart for God. And God says to his people, I've called you to be holy because I am holy. Another way of putting this is, I've called you to be be utterly different because I am utterly different God. I'm an utterly different God, and so you are to be an utterly different people in the world among people who don't know me or worship me. We are to be a unique and distinct community of people who follow God, who live and act and hope differently in the midst of a world that does not know God. And the reality is we would rather die. We would rather not be different. We'd rather blend in. We would rather fit in. We would rather not be distinct. We would rather be like everyone else. It's safer that way. We don't stand out. They asked for a king so that they could blend in. They were not only rejecting God as their king, they were rejecting their identity as God's people who were called to be unique and different. Notice these tendencies that they had and maybe, maybe think, in what ways we have tendencies to do this today. First, God has called them and called them to have an identity to when they think about how do we live our life, we should be asking the question, what does God say? So when we're making decisions, when we're deciding big things and small things in our life, we should always be asking God, what do you say? But instead, we are tempted to ask the question, what does everyone else say? What are people doing around us? How are they living? And that will direct how I should live. And God is saying, no, I've called you to listen to me in how to live. You get your direction from what I have instructed for you. But we say, what do other people think? What should I do based on what they say? Another thing is that God has called us to have an identity that is distinct and holy and different. But we are tempted to blend in, to don't stand out, to fit in, to be like others. God has called his people to be a light to the nations, showing the world the goodness of God in how we are different. But we are tempted to conform to the dominant culture, the dominant values of the culture. God has called us to trust in his promises for the future. When we are worried, when we don't know what the future brings, God has called us to trust in him. And we are tempted to react to circumstances, to trust in our own wisdom or the conventional wisdom of the day. Do you struggle with any of these? Are you prone to adopt any of these? Do you see this side by side where God has called his people to be holy and we have some kind of allergic reaction to that? We have always been allergic to this identity as people that are called to be a light to the nation. But his people don't want to be that. They don't want to speak into the darkness. They don't want to change minds. They don't want to be different. They want to be like others. And lastly, we see this God exposing their hearts in this way that we are prone to resist 
God's wisdom. Samuel, who was their leader, was approached by the people who said, you're great and all, you're a great leader, and we really appreciate you, but we want a king like everyone else. So Samuel goes to God, and he says, God, and he's discouraged, he's dejected, he's, he's frustrated, and he says, everyone's asking for a king, and I tried to tell them that they don't need a king because they have, they have you to lead them, and that's better than any earthly king, but they still want to be like everyone else. So what do you want me to say? And so God says, well, give them what they want, but first give them one last option. Go and tell them, what I, go and tell them what a king will do to them. And tell them, I said, that this is exactly what will happen to them if they have a king. And so he says, okay, he goes to them, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a king if you want one, but first a warning. Know this, that your king will rule over you. He'll make you farm his land. He'll tax you on what you produce from that land, and then he'll take your produce anyway. He'll take your grapes to make wine for himself. He will take your livestock to build his own reputation so that he looks good. Uh, He'll even take your wives and your daughters for his own pleasure. He will use you to build his own prestige and his own kingdom. He'll send off your sons to war, and your daughters will be put in sweatshops to make clothes for him and his own family. And you yourselves will be slaves again like you were in Egypt, and you'll regret all that you have done. And a day will come where you will see plainly what you have done and how it was wrong, and you will cry out to me for help, and I won't hear you because you have turned your backs on me. And so Samuel, go tell them that. And so Samuel goes to them, and he says, guys, this is what's going to happen. So considering the warning from God, considering what the future holds if you go in this direction, do you still want to go forward with this? And the people said, thank you, for showing us the error of our ways. We repent of that attitude and we will serve God only. No, that's not what they said. They said, forward, <laughs> let's do it. Can you just appreciate how ridiculous this is for a minute? Can you just appreciate how like, immune they are to the wisdom of God? How could this be? The, the story at this point is really the climax where God is speaking wisdom and they hear the wisdom, but they do not submit to it. And we look at it and say, that is so foolish. Who would do that? And fail to see our own tendencies to hear the wisdom of God and to see what the world is doing and say, that's all good, God. I appreciate what what you're saying, but I still think that this is the right way to go. Or maybe some combination of the two. Sometime the way we fail to listen to God's wisdom is so sophisticated that we have a hard time seeing how ridiculous it sounds, just like what's happening with them. We are immune to God's wisdom. We are prone to be so allergic to God's wisdom. We are prone to think of our own reason. We have sophisticated ways of sinning against God's wisdom. I'd like to talk to you just for a moment about coconut oil, if that's okay. Okay, coconut oil is one of the most delicious smelling things on the planet. Can we just agree on You don't have to agree with me. It's just the truth. <laughs> it is one of the most delicious smelling things. We've got this big tub, of, and every time I open it, I want to cover myself in it. I want to drink it. I want to lather up, and I just want to eat it. Tastes, it's ta- it smells like an Almond Joy tastes, which is amazing. And again, not, not a discussion, just a fact, okay? Um, <laughs> When it's in its hardened state, coconut oil kind of has a a texture between like a custard and like a whipped cream. I mean, it's so good looking. Coconut, 
coconut oil, it, it looks pleasing to the taste, but I want to tell you something very important. Coconut oil sits on a throne of lies. Uh, coconut oil does not taste like it smells. And so one day I'm like, this has to be so good. And so I take a spoon and I dip it in the coconut oil and it says, if this tastes like it smells, then I'm gonna, I, this is my new obsession. It doesn't taste like it smells. Rather, it tastes like, I've tried to think all week of like, what does it taste like? It tastes like, like saltless tears. <laughs> it tastes really gross. It tastes like the, the, the trail behind a slug looks. And so it does not taste like it smells. Here's the point. It has no point to the sermon. I just wanted you to know. No, it has a point. <laughs> Some of our most sophisticated ways of seeing the world are utterly godless. Some of the ways that we look at God's wisdom and we look with our own minds into our world and we say, I know what God says, but it can't be what it means because this looks so plainly good and important. And it may be a little different from what God has said. Some of the, we have such sophisticated ways of disobeying God to the point where it seems like we know better than God. But I want you to know, I want you to know how plainly godless it is. It's as plainly godless as what we see here in this passage. God's saying, this is what is going to happen if you trust in your wisdom and neglect me. You will be enslaved by your own sin, and when you cry out, I won't listen. And God's people says, that's okay. And we say, what a bunch of morons. And we do the same thing. Anytime we look at God's wisdom and debate with God, or think that our sophisticated reasoning is somehow more wise than God, we are doing the same thing. It's so foolish. It's so ridiculous. You may have a great way of seeing the world around you and analyzing your circumstances and thinking of the best way out of those circumstances. But the question is, is it true? Is it godly? Is it consistent with what God has said? If it is not, then it will enslave you. Are your theories about life and relationships and, and are they, and morality, about what is right and what is wrong, are they consistent with what God has said? From the Garden of Eden until now, humanity has rejected God as their king and has a passion for substitutes. And we do it still. From the Garden of Eden, when Eve looked upon the apple and she said, it looks good for food, it looks good to the taste, how could it be wrong for me? A king looks good. We don't have an earthly leader and all the other nations have good leaders. And God has told us, I'm your leader, but how could it be bad for us? And so even in their most sophisticated ways, they were believing a lie. And in even Adam's most sophisticated ways, they were believing a lie and it was totally godless. And the result was their death, their spiritual death, their relational death, the death of creation and eventually their physical death. And, it is, and we have inherited that disease. We've inherited that slavery. And apart from God's wisdom, apart from His salvation and forgiveness, we maintain our, we, we, we continue in that, that state of death. We think we know our way out. We think that we can outsmart God and think our way out of it. In each case, whatever we do, we must be honest about the, how the ways that we are prone to put our hope in things that we can see 
rather than in the wisdom of God. Uh, the passage is a mirror for us, like I said. This 1 Samuel 8 is, is unique, and I've mentioned that already as well. It is where God is turning the mirror towards us and saying, I want to show you what you are really like, so that in acknowledging this, you would trust me more, that you would cry out for help, that you would see and be convinced of your errors, and that you would cry out, and I would love you, that you would trust in my care for you, and you would find true comfort. God is exposing a lack of genuine faith that we are so prone to have. And that's really what it is. Whenever we substitute God out for something else, whatever that something else is, we are expressing a lack of a defect in our faith. And faith is not merely a blind leap in the dark. The answer is not, well, just believe, just trust God and follow Him and follow Him blindly. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's to simply put it in another way. Faith is believing in what God has said and resting in the confidence of who God is. So it's hearing what God says with the full weight of his evidence of who he is and what he has done. It's not just taking blindly his scripture. It is actually navigating the story of how he's revealed himself to people for for generations, for thousands of years. Seeing him time and time again showing himself faithful. Seeing him time and time again expressing his, his care for his people showing us the, the faults in our ways and how, how we keep returning to, to our wisdom and how it never works. And ultimately, we see God's care for us in the person of Jesus Christ. How He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we look on the cross and it's there we see God's love poured out for us. What these people are saying to God, when God says, you don't need a king, I care for you. And their response is simply this, tell us one time that you've actually cared for us. And God says, seriously? How much have you forgotten? When we hear God's word and decide to go in a different way, God is saying, I care so much for you. Walk in my ways and you will find your peace. You will find your joy. And we respond to God by saying, tell me one time you've done anything for me. And he says, seriously? I've given everything. I've given you Jesus. I've given you myself. I have not withhold any joy from you. I've given you the riches of heaven. I've given you relationship with me that you do not deserve. I've given you promise of restoration. I've given promise for a, an, an expiration date on your suffering. I have not kept anything from you, but out of joy I've given you everything. How could you say that I've done nothing for you? Faith is believing in what God has said in the confidence of who he is and what he has done. Likely you're experiencing something in your life today or you have experiencing something in your past. You're coming out of something difficult. But the sure thing is for all of us, Solomon says in the wisdom scriptures of Proverbs, he says, as sure as sparks fly upward, you and I are going to encounter trouble in our life. And there may be a time where you've acted like the Israelites, where you are prone to substitute trust in God for something else. And in a day and age when we um, are, a day and age where we worship personal freedom, where we worship our own sophisticated way of seeing the world and not following Jesus, there's no shortage of temptation to substitute out God 
and bring in something else. If we don't believe in what God says, we'll sub him out and sub something else in. And whatever we sub in, whatever that something else is, it will not, it will not live up to its promise and it will ultimately destroy us every single time. What are you prone to substitute for God? What are you prone, what area of your life are you prone to rely on what you see as your sophisticated wisdom? Taking God out and putting that thing in. We struggle to believe that God's word is good. We struggle to believe that his ways are, are wise and true. We struggle to believe that his word is sufficient, meaning we struggle to believe that everything that God has said to us is everything we need for life. We struggle to believe that, and we think there's got to be something else. There's got to be many things that God has missed, and there's not. A life of true faith is a life of true believing in Jesus and what he has done for us for every part of our life. Describing our faith in Jesus, here's what the New Testament says. Peter tells us this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Instead of living for what we can see that cannot save us, God is calling us to live for what we cannot see but that can ultimately save us. And that's really difficult for us to do. We want we have a passion for substitutes. We want to taste it. We want to feel it. We want to see it. We want to touch it. Even if it means getting off of a detour to our ultimate destination that will give us ultimate joy for just some satisfaction right now. And here's what Jesus' kingship means for us. That we have one of two options. We have to reject God or we need to crown him in our life. We need to substitute him and follow something else as our king, or we need to crown him as king and follow him only. We cannot say that Jesus is really good, that Jesus has done many good things and I want to be more like him. But while I am learning from him, I want to kind of do things uh, according to my own wisdom. That is, as God sees it, he says, that is to reject him altogether. But to crown him, we are told that genuine trust in Jesus is not something we should do. We, we are told that it is the very thing, trusting in Jesus is the very thing that produces salvation. It is the very thing that produces inexpressible joy. And isn't that the very thing that we're after when we substitute God, substitute something else in, and we substitute God out? Aren't we after joy? Aren't we after pleasure and peace? The reason why we get off of the highway for, is because we just want rest. Aren't the, the reasons why you take shortcuts, why you want to blend in? Is it because you just want joy? Well, God is telling us, I know what you want, but you are trading inexpressible joy that you cannot even express in human terms. You're trading that for a cheap thrill. Why would you do that? And we look at God's people and we say, why would they do that? And we do the same thing. It's not something that we should do. It produces faith it, or salvation. It produces joy. It produces inexpressible joy in our hearts that overflow in, in a life that glorifies God. I want you to know that your, your life is in, is in the hands of a sovereign God who cares for you. 
And this means that there will be unexpected situations. They're unexpected to you. They're not unexpected to God. God knew this point would come. And out of God's love in ways that we can't even fully understand, God will allow us, He will give to us the things that we want. And in sometimes, the reason He gives it to us is for our own discipline. And sometimes the, way, the reason God keeps things from us that we pray for is out of His own love for us. Don't misunderstand God's answer to our prayer as His care or His, or his lack of answer to our prayer as a lack of care. Even our sin, even the things that we do cannot get in the way of God's sovereign care for what He wants to teach us. And that means that you could be prepared to encounter things that you don't know are coming because Jesus is King and that He is good and that He reminds us that nothing that we face is beyond His concern. It's not beyond His ability. And nothing is impossible for Him. Crown Him. Crown Him King. Don't sub Him out. Trust Him with your life. He's good and He cares for you. Let's pray.